Listen now to the Word of God. Beginning in Romans 11, verse 25. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers and sisters. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion and will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. So reads God's word. I have a joyful task today. I have the privilege of opening up two passages of Scripture that stand against the backdrop of the fallen brokenness of this world and proclaim a contrasting word of encouragement to God's people. This morning, one that includes an implicit invitation to worship that we mentioned already, that is all but unrivaled, I would say, in the balance of God's worship-saturated word, these last few verses of Romans 11 are, are verses that are referred to often when it's time to worship and praise God and to be reminded of who he is and of how his ways are well beyond our ways. One of the, the descriptions of him that we've bumped up against all the way through this study of Romans is that God is not just a great big one of us. He is fundamentally different. So the reasons why God does what he does are unknown to us. He and his grace and mercy in passages like Romans 9 through 11 and in the book of Job and a number of other places opens the curtain a bit so we can get a glimpse into how the mind of God works. And it's an amazing experience. But it's unsearchable. It's inscrutable, meaning it's beyond our understanding. We, we don't get it. We can follow parts of it as it's explained to us. But we are made to be worshipers of God. 
And the God we meet in the scriptures, the God we meet in Romans 9 through 11, the God we meet in this text that we just read together is a God who is worthy of our worship. We can understand something of what he tells us of himself. But mostly we stand back in awe and are just thankful that this God is good because the power that he exhibits in the way that he conducts himself, the way that he created his world, the way that he reconciles rebel sinners to himself, the way that he does that is beyond us. I have the privilege of proclaiming a text like that this morning. This evening, then, is the conclusion of our tailgate series in John 14 through 16. Let not your hearts be troubled, that's the title. Jesus' parting words of encouragement to his followers. We'll be looking at the, the final four or five verses of John 16, verses 29 through 33, a message called Take Heart, and it's rich. This morning, we're in the closing verses now of Romans 11 that finish with Paul's display here of God's highest aim in the salvation he sovereignly provides. God's highest aim in the salvation he sovereignly provides. And what is that aim? To magnify his glory by enabling fallen sinners to enter into the worship and praise that flows from full enjoyment of him. That's a pretty glorious statement. That's the text that forbid that we would be in this text and not leave here just worshiping God for the salvation he provides and for the fact that we get to be recipients of it. God's highest aim in the salvation he sovereignly provides is to magnify his glory by enabling fallen sinners to enter into worship and praise that flows from full enjoyment of a holy and a righteous God. Well, let's look into this text now together. Verses 25 to 36. We're going to do so under three headings, and you see them listed in your bulletin so you can track as we go. We'll spend a whole lot longer on the first one than on the second and third. But that's just because the text enables that, and then as we understand the early part of this text, which is really the conclusion of the paragraph we started last week, as you recall, verses 11 through 32 are really one thought unit in this letter. And as we conclude then, Romans 9 through 11. But the three parts are first, a fuller explanation of Israel's situation. So most of this is review of what Paul has said before, but he's tying it together and bringing it home. He's letting us know what all of this teaching should call us to think and to be and to do. A fuller explanation of Israel's situation, verses 25 to 29. Then a relevant example for the nations to understand, or for me to say for the Gentiles to understand, verses 30 to 32. And then a worshipful expression that all creation should offer. This is verses 33 to 36. Let's walk through this text together. Paul opens this closing section of verses 11 to 32, this closing section of 9 to 11 as a unit. He, he opens this closing statement with a bold affirmation of something that neither this Roman church nor any believer right up to the present day 
could know apart from his statement here. When we're reading our New Testaments, we're used to putting together ideas that are being addressed in the text that we already know and they're being explained more deeply, more fully. Because the mystery of God has been revealed. Christ has come. Atonement has been offered. Sacrifice has been made. The Spirit has been given. So mystery, something previously hidden, now revealed, is something we understand. And that's one of the first statements we learn, definitions we learn, as we start studying the Bible. So as Paul opens this section, he's talking to us about something that we couldn't know otherwise. So he's not being cheeky here when he writes, lest you be wise in your own eyes, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers and sisters. It's that inclusive word. Lest you be wise in your own eyes, I don't want you to be unaware. Uh, one modern translation says ignorant. That makes it sound even more cheeky. Lest you be wise in your own eyes, I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery. We need to stop there a moment and understand that theological definition that I just mentioned. A definition we learn early on. What is a mystery? You could probably quote it with me. It's a truth previously hidden that's now been revealed. Right? You hear that often in Bible study. A mystery in the New Testament is a truth previously hidden that has now been revealed, and we might even say has now been revealed in Christ or in the gospel. And that's a true statement, and that's usually the way Paul uses the word here. But I believe he's using it somewhat differently at this point. There is another definition of mystery that's related but different. It's a definition that comes out of the study of Jewish apocalyptic literature. And that seems to be how Paul is using the word here with a slightly varied definition. That definition should be on the screen for you. In the words of Doug Moo, a mystery in this sense is an event of the end times that has already been determined by God but which is first revealed to the apocalyptic seer for the comfort and encouragement of the people of Israel. It's an end times event that God has determined and that he's made known through an apocalyptic writer, Paul in this case, John in the book of Revelation, that is intended for the comfort and encouragement of the people of Israel. So do you hear the difference in the two definitions of mercy? Usually we understand a mystery as something previously hidden that we can now see because Christ has come. Like Gentiles and Jews being joint heirs of salvation as one new man, like Lance was talking about a little bit earlier this morning. One new man in Christ. But here in Romans 11, together with 1 Corinthians 15, which is the only other place that I believe Paul uses this definition of mystery, we see Paul using that older Jewish apocalyptic definition. These are things we don't see now, nor will we see them until the last days. They are still a mystery to us, and we only know them because of the revelation of God that has been made known through Paul in these two different places. Something that's going to happen in the end times that hasn't happened yet with the coming of Christ. Without these descriptions then that Paul gives us, we wouldn't know, for instance, that we shall all 
receive our resurrection bodies in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. That mystery that he points out in 1 Corinthians 15. Nor would we know that those who are alive will, will meet him in the air. Nor would we know right here that Israel's hardening toward the gospel is partial. And that it's temporary. We wouldn't know that. We would think that Israel has rejected the gospel and that's just the state of affairs. And here it goes to the nations and that's just the way it's going to be for the rest of time, apart from this text. We wouldn't know this because we haven't seen it yet. So Israel's hardening toward the gospel is partial. A Jewish remnant does believe, Paul says, so it's not entire. And it's temporary because he says right here in verse 25, it's until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, until they've received Christ as Savior, Messiah, Jesus as Savior. So Israel's hardening is both partial and temporary. And this is a point of revelation. Paul doesn't want us to miss this. He doesn't want us to live as though God is done with Israel and now it's all about the I want you to be wise in your own eyes thinking that that's the way it is because you haven't seen this yet so I want to reveal to you what God has made known he's not finished with ethnic Israel and that leads us to the statement that stands at the heart of this passage this morning it's verse 26 and in this way all Israel will be saved Paul writes, that is a lightning rod of a verse. We could easily not just spend the rest of this morning looking into that phrase. We could do a series on that phrase all by itself that would turn into a biblical theology of the salvation that God has provided. Our intent is not to take that kind of time with it this morning. But just to ask, what does Paul mean here as he's saying this? Can we cut through all of the study and the different possibilities of what he might mean to hear in context what he appears to be saying? So far, Paul has used this name Israel, this word Israel, to refer to ethnic Jews. He's used it to refer to the Jewish remnant who is savingly believed in Jesus, so a subset of ethnic Jews. And he's used it to describe the elect Jews and Gentiles together as a unit. The new Israel, so to speak. Talking about children of Abraham and those who are children of Abraham by faith are Israel. Not all who were born to Israel are Israel, but those who've trusted Christ as Savior. So he's used the word in all three ways in this letter. How is he using it here? Well, I would say, to cut to the chase, that throughout 9 through 11... He's used this name, Israel, to describe ethnic Jews because that's what he's talking about in this section. The question is, is God done with the promises that he made to his old covenant people? So through this whole section, he's talking to them. He's talking about them or talking to Gentiles regarding the situation with Israel to undergird the church's confidence in the promises he's now made to her because it could look like he's made promises like this before and he didn't keep them. That's the whole point of Romans 9 through 11. So throughout this section, 
We believe he's used this name, Israel, to describe his ethnic people. Nine of the ten times that it appears in these three chapters. But all here is almost certainly not referring to every individual Jewish person. It's possible, but it's not likely. That's just not what Paul seems to be emphasizing here. We saw last week that the best sense in this whole section is that Israel will turn to Christ in the last days in a way comparable to their rejection of him in these present days. It's as though now there's a, a small remnant that believe, but the vast majority don't. If that's the point of reference, then the flip-flop seems to be what Paul is talking about. The vast majority will, even though there's no indication necessarily that every single individual Israelite will savingly believe in that time. And perhaps that means that every single Jewish person at that time will embrace Christ. Maybe it could mean that, but it just doesn't seem so. Just not sure that's what we read here. A better way to understand this description, I believe, would be to see it as commentators describe it this way, as the corporate entity of the nation. That's what all Israel means. Israel as a unit. Israel as a body, a corporate entity of the nation. That's the most common way this description of all Israel is used, evidently, in most of the Jewish literature that is considered in studying this passage. It's, that it's as referring to the nation as a whole and not necessarily every single individual within it. It would be like saying, to use Doug Moo's illustrations, the whole school turned out for the football game. Now, would we consider that a false statement if every single student and administrator were not there? And how far does that extend? Is it the students plus the parents? The whole point is the school turned out for the game. They were there. They were in support of their team. Another way, the whole nation was outraged at the incident. Boy, we've seen examples of that in our own nation in recent years, haven't we? And in each of those circumstances, the whole nation might have been outraged, but the, the nation was outraged about different things in different segments. But the whole nation was in an uproar. Does that mean every single person was troubled about those incidents, whatever those incidents were? No, it doesn't. That's the way I believe we understand all Israel here. It's not necessarily talking about every single individual Jew, but... The nation as a unit will come to saving faith in Christ. And so, Israel will embrace Jesus in great numbers in the last days. We can affirm that from this text. And perhaps, perhaps every single one of them will. We don't want to rule out that possibility. But I would say this first statement here that I just made seems more like Paul is, what Paul is meaning here. Israel will embrace Christ in great numbers in the last days. And just like there is a, a remnant of saving belief during this season of judgment, there, there may be a remnant of those who are still unbelieving even when the nation turns to Christ. And I would say almost certainly there will. That just seems to be how things work in world history. It seems to be the way Paul is talking about it here. So in this way, all Israel will be saved and in this way, 
just referring back to especially verses 11 through 24, but actually chapters 9 through 11 up to this point, and, and even all the way back into chapters 2 and 3 as Israel's unbelief and their salvation in Christ are being spotlighted. So in this way, in this way that Paul has described, all whom God has purposed to come to saving faith will come to him. And in the last days, he promises that they will come in mass. As it is written, he writes here in verse 26, this way all Israel will be saved as it is written. Just as he's done it as the punctuation mark of each section of chapters 9 through 11, he goes back to the Old Testament to strengthen and establish and to build the foundation for his argument. So here, we could take time to look at these passages, but I think there's a, a, an, an easier way to get a handle on what Paul is doing here. As it is written, then he quotes from Isaiah 59, verses 20 and 21, there in 26 in the first part of 27, along with a little slice of Isaiah 27 in the second part of verse 27, and then perhaps some echoes from Deuteronomy 33 or Psalm 14 or Psalm 53 or Psalm 110. He's pulling together some threads here to build this foundation, that all of those are mixed into what we hear here in verses 26 and 27, but it's all toward making the point that it was always God's intention to apply his salvation in this way. For him to be the sovereign God who grants salvation to all who believe and who for a season is working with Israel and then he blinds Israel in judgment, turning them over to their unbelief and the gospel goes to the nations. And as we read right here, as soon as all of the nations have come in, then he turns his attention back to the Jews and will call them into saving belief as well. All to the praise of the glory of a God who can save rebel sinners and reconcile them to himself. We'll say that again in a few minutes. But anyway, all of these passages then in verses 26 and 27 work together, but all making the point that it was always God's intention to apply his salvation in the way that he's done it. And that's summarized here in verses 28 and 29 as this opening portion of today's passage finishes. Verse 28, as regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. They've been blinded and the gospel's gone to the nations. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. God is not forsaking the promises that he made through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the application to their heirs according to the flesh that those who are born into that family might also savingly believe by trusting in the Messiah that's going to be provided through them. As regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. If we pull one verse out of this section and put it on a bumper sticker or stick it to a mirror or memorize it and hold on to it as a reminder of the faithfulness of an all-powerful, all-loving, saving God. There it is right there. The gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. His word will be kept. Almost certainly here, Paul is referring back to the list of gifts 
that he gives us at the beginning of chapter 9, verses 4 and 5, all of those things with which he's blessed Israel. The gifts of God are irrevocable. He's poured them out on this people through whom he's purposed to provide salvation. And his calling here almost certainly refers to their election in Abraham, just as he's pointed out in verse 28, just as he's just mentioned. The gifts of God, all those blessings that were listed at the beginning of this section in chapter 9, and his calling, the election that begets those blessings, all of that is irrevocable. And with this statement, then, he's finishing his argument in this section of chapters 9 through 11. God will be faithful, Paul is saying, to his people, and thus we can absolutely be confident that despite any appearances to the contrary, the word of God has not failed. And he's finished making that argument. That's the affirmation in chapter 9, verse 6, of where he's headed in these next three chapters and in these couple of verses, 28 and 29, he's drawing that off and saying, the word of God has not failed. He's accomplished his salvation exactly as he said he would. And there have been multiple Old Testament references throughout this argument showing it was always intended to be so. It's not just sort of a reaction to the fact that his initial saving plan didn't work. This is how it was planned from the beginning. Now, quick aside before we move on in the text. Just something I want to say about this text and about a partner one, another partner one in the Old Testament that I think we could find very helpful. Take some time today, if you can, to read Psalm 89. Psalm 89. It's, a, it's too long for us to read here, 52 verses. But take some time to read it today. I think you'll be blessed. It's tremendously helpful in seeing how God's blessing of Israel and his judgment of Israel simultaneously are not incoherent. And not only are they not incoherent, they're not even incompatible with one another. They appear side by side in that psalm as you move through that narrative. Psalm 89 is attributed to Ethan the Ezraite. It moves through sections where God's faithful promises to Israel are spotlighted and especially his faithful promises to David are in the spotlight. It reaffirms that blessing comes to those who obey and punishment to those who don't. God is full of wrath toward those who don't obey. Verses 38 to 45 say that with some clarity in this psalm. But even so, God straightforwardly affirms in this psalm, in verse 34, I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Not going to be unfaithful to my word, even while I'm pouring out judgment on my people. The people to whom I made the promises. Psalm 89 puts all that together. And God underscores his future blessing of Israel in verses 34 to 37 of that psalm. So the final section of Psalm 89 before its closing benediction because it finishes book three of the psalms and each of the psalms that end one of the five books ends with a doxology. 
So before it finishes with the doxology there in verse 52, it poses questions. Ethan poses questions to God like verse 46. How long will your wrath burn like fire? And verse 49, where is your steadfast love of old, which by your faithfulness you swore to David? Where is it? Where's the saving love of God? Why are we under the fire of your judgment, and how long will that last? Those are the questions that are being posed as Psalm 89 comes to a conclusion, because both of these threads have been laid out. And these questions lead into a final petition that echoes Israel's experience at that time, but also, I would say, Israel's experience of Gentile arrogance at their stumbling that we're reading about right here in Romans 11. It's the reason why this is such a helpful psalm. I think this, you, you can hear in this final petition in prayer words that might be prayed by the Jews of Paul's day in response to what they're hearing about the salvation and how God has intended to pour it out. Verses 50 and 51, here's the prayer. Remember, O Lord, how your servants are mocked and how I hear in my heart the insults of all the many nations with which your enemies mock, O Lord, and with which they mock the footsteps of your anointed. That's the end of the petition, and then the doxology finishes that psalm. Psalm 89 is a great companion to study with Romans 9 through 11 showing us how best to respond when it looks like God's promises and his actions aren't matching up. Where it looks like God has said one thing and is doing another. How do we respond? We respond just like the psalmist modeled for us here. We call out to him in prayer to display his faithfulness, to avenge his people, to vindicate his name, to keep his promises. We call out to him, believing that he's faithful and true and saying, we don't see it in our day. How long until we see it again? Because we trust you. We know that the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. So show us. When we're told in the Old Testament scriptures to pray for the salvation of Israel, I think it's just like this. God has promised to do so and we're calling out. It's one more way of saying, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And how amazing that some of our greatest help in that pursuit, in that prayer, comes from the Old Testament Scriptures in the darkest of the five books of the Psalms. So as we pray this way, as we pray the way Ethan prayed in Psalm 89, I believe that's the humility that Paul is encouraging on the part of the Gentiles here in Romans 11. And really in Romans 9 through 11. I don't want you to be arrogant. I don't want you to be wise in your own eyes. How? Uh, recognize how God does his saving. And then call out to him to do it to the praise of his glory. That's the end of my quick aside. Maybe you think it wasn't all that quick. But I think it was an important one. And I hope you have opportunity to dig into Psalm 89 a bit today. Moving into part 2 of our passage. Verses 30 to 32. Verses 30 and 31 here, as it opens, a relevant example for the nations to understand. Verses 30 and 31 here make an important contribution to Paul's argument. But 
as I said earlier, we can move through them rather quickly. I didn't tell you why then, and I will now. We can move through them rather quickly because they essentially recap the process Paul has described several times already. Namely, that God works out his purposes of salvation in history by moving the focus back and forth between Jews and Gentiles. This could seem unnecessary. It could seem inefficient, this flip-flopping back and forth. It could even seem extraneous. But it serves a purpose that Paul makes explicit before he finishes this this rich and, and, and unprecedented section of this letter and of all of his letters right here in Romans 11. We see the purpose expressed in the explanatory statement of verse 32. So here we see one more manifestation of God's saving going back and forth in focus. Why? Verse 32. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. He retells how it happens one more time in order to give us this summary statement. For God has consigned all to disobedience. That echoes all the way back to the beginning of the letter from the middle of chapter 1 up through chapter 3 where the gospel is mentioned. He's consigned everyone to disobedience. He's sealed them in like you're sealed in an envelope. You want to rebel against God? All right. God judges and you're sealed into that rebellion unless God opens your eyes to your need. And you're just happy as a clam in that state because you're doing what you want. Life doesn't work out as well as you'd hope, but you're doing what you want. So there's really no desire for anything else. None of us wants to be under somebody else's authority. None of us. We would rather suffer in autonomy then come under someone else's authority and thrive. That's the heart of rebels. That's who we are. That's who we've been described to be in this letter. God is saying, I've sealed you into that. Consigned all to disobedience that he might, might have mercy on all. You know what we can say in response to this? Verse 32 tells us it's about fairness. God is being fair to Jew and Gentile alike. He's consigned all over to disobedience. He might have mercy on all. Not all, every single individual, but all indiscriminately into both groups. It's a matter of fairness. We want to protect fairness in this whole picture by factoring in human freedom and choice. We want autonomy. We need it. So we want fairness to come that way, but God establishes fairness in a very different way in this text. God establishes fairness by putting everyone in the same place, everyone at the same point of need. Lance quoted Galatians 3 this morning. In Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, male, female. All of us stand equally in need before God. Regardless of our ethnicity, regardless of our gender, regardless of our culture, regardless of our background, regardless of where we live on this planet that God has created, we stand in equal need before him of being reconciled to him. We're captive to our sin and therefore in need of his grace. And in his sovereign mercy, God treats Israel the same as the nations, 
Yes, they have favored status as the ones through whom salvation has been delivered into this world. But then once it has been delivered through this ethnic line, each one in that line stands in equal need of the salvation that has been provided through them. So Israel does stand apart in some ways. We saw those answers back earlier in the letter. Differing answers to what sound like the same question because they're spotlighting these two different roles that Israel plays. Blessed of God to be the ones through whom Messiah is provided. In equal need before God of bowing the knee in repentance and faith to that Messiah. And therefore being born again into the new covenant family of God which is called the church or the olive tree or however else we want to, the one new man. We could use all the different metaphors. The temple of God where he dwells by his spirit. Different metaphors used throughout the New Testament to describe that same saved entity. When it comes to being reconciled to God then everyone Jew and Gentile alike has equal standing before him. Equal need. And then just as we already have seen God has mercy on whom he wills. Salvation is ultimately in his hands. And he's made it fair by making everybody need it just the same. Not by the way we would want to redefine fairness in this equation. That's how it works. Now that leads us up to this passage we've mentioned several times. That leads us up to one of the richest and most captivating expressions, not only in this letter, but in all of our New Testament. It puts the finishing touches on this paragraph, yes, verses 11 to 32. But it also puts the finishing touches on this section of the letter, verses, chapters 9 through 11, addressing this whole question, has the word of God failed to his old covenant people? And in fact, it puts the finishing touches on everything that we have read so far from Romans 1 right up through Romans 11.32. It finishes with a flourish. What should be the response of the human heart to the salvation that has been explicated in this letter? To the need in the human heart that has been laid out with abundant and undeniable clarity, we are dead in our transgressions and sins and can do nothing to help ourselves. And yet, we can be reconciled to a holy God who can have no fellowship with sin and yet maintain his holiness. This God is so great, he is so other than us, that he can take an absolutely irresolvable situation and resolve it. There should be no way that rebel sinners can be reconciled to a holy God. It is inconceivable. We can't do it. And yet, God did it. This passage puts the finishing touches on all of this that we have read so far. 
It's the culmination of the whole extended doctrinal portion of this letter that explains this gospel to this church that Paul has never met. And it sets us up for this transition into the response section of this letter beginning in chapter 12. A section that begins with imagery that's almost as vivid as these final few verses here. Before we read these verses, though, and I think they should be the last things we hear today, before we read them, we want to get ready for them. You don't just rush into the presence of greatness. Whether you're visiting a head of state or reviewing an artistic masterpiece, you don't rush in. You get prepared. You get ready for it. And you get ready for what we're about to read together. Think of all that we've covered so far. Not our fight or our, our struggle to understand it, but, but our just receiving it as God's word. This is how God does it. Like it or not. Let's not fight with it at this point. Let's marvel at the fact that the God of all creation has purposed to, to give us this description. To pull back the curtain and let us see into his heart and mind in ways that he didn't need to do. Even if he provided salvation for us, he didn't need to give us his word Thousands of pages, thousands of words communicated from God through his chosen servants to his people in every generation. God didn't need to do that, but he has. Think of all of that. Our receiving God's word, the word of an all-powerful, all-knowing, all loving, judging, but merciful and saving God. Whose ways are being described and delineated, whose ways are being expressed and explained, accommodated to fallen creatures who in their hearts are just at war with him. Yet he's communicating gently, tenderly, clearly, unswervingly. Think of the glorious truth that rebel sinners even have a hope of being reconciled to a holy God, a creator God, but also that this God has accomplished their salvation fully at his own cost. And he's applied it fully according to his own gracious and sovereign will. Thank God he's done it that way. And hopefully you can say that with me at this stage of this letter. Think of the richness of the salvation described as God's comfort in Isaiah 40. You know the passage? Comfort. Comfort my people Israel. She's paid double for all her sins. 
Think of the richness of the salvation described as God's comfort in Isaiah 40. That sets the context for the first question posed here in verse 34. It comes out of Isaiah 40, verse 13. Now think of the study of who God is that we find in the book of Job. One of the greatest self-revelations of God that we could read. There's the source for the second question in verse 34. Looks on our page like one question, but it really comes in two parts. It's coming from two different passages of Scripture. But he stays in Job for the next question. Think about God's own questions posed back to Job in that, that breathtaking encounter at the end of Job's story. When God finally turns the tables, he's been asked questions all along, now he turns around and begins asking Job these questions. The question in verse 35 comes out of that encounter. Job 41. And all of this then walks us right up to the threshold of this closing benediction. A statement is made in the study of theology that's important to note. Theology should lead to doxology. If you write down a statement that isn't straight from the page of Scripture this morning, like the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable, write down that one. Theology should lead to doxology. All talk about God, theology, should lead to praise and worship of God. If it doesn't, it really is worthless. Theology should lead to doxology. Paul is modeling that for us here. Having laid out the theology of our salvation, he models the response that the people of God should have toward it. This, my friends, is the only proper response of the human heart to all that we've studied this morning. To all that we've studied in this section of Romans, chapters 9 through 11, and to all that we've covered from the very beginning of the letter, this is the only proper response. Far from being ashamed of the gospel that Paul confessed he was not, Back in chapter 1, verse 16, here is the positive statement of his response. I am not ashamed of the gospel. What do we plug in there? He, he describes why he's not. It's the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, the Jew first and also the Greek. And wow, when we hear that now and recognize where he's gone over the next 11 chapters after making that statement, it's breathtaking. It really is. But if we get to the place where we understand, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Here's my response to the gospel. Right here in 11, 33 to 36. Paul's response. I pray it's our response as well. Listen now one more time to the word of God. And seek his grace to enter into this expression along with the author, along with Paul. 
Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways, how untraceable, how beyond understanding are his ways. Then come the quotes as questions. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Who instructed him to go this way, to do it like this? Who? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Who has done something commendable for God? Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things surely not least our salvation. To him, to him alone be glory forever. Soli deo gloria. And all God's people said, Amen. 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 Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we still have a very deep and profound sense that the glorious conclusion to which Paul has led us under the inspiration of your spirit here in this text is beyond our grasp. The distance between where we generally live our lives and living our life as an expression of this affirmation of worship is almost beyond our ability to conceive, not to mention to believe that you are actually able to get us there. But Father, then we have to remember that the salvation that we have received by your gracious and sovereign mercy is absolutely and utterly beyond our ability, beyond our understanding. It's outside of our realm of experience to the point where to us, if posed the question, we would say that reconciliation of rebel sinners to an infinitely holy God is a logical impossibility not just a practical one, a logical one. There's no way for it to be done, and yet you've done it. Father, I pray that the awe and the wonder at our reconciliation to you in Christ 
would continue descending upon us with gravity this morning. That it would come to bear on every single part of us that still wants to stand up in opposition against you, even having embraced by faith the salvation that you've provided. I pray that the light of your gospel might illumine even the darkest corners of our hearts and minds this morning with the very light of this worship and praise with which this passage finishes as the only appropriate response to that salvation. And I pray that in your sovereign grace, yet again, Lord God, you might enable us to live in a manner worthy of our calling and of the salvation that you've provided. We are desperately poor and needy. The very thing that we don't want to do, we continue doing, even as Paul has confessed. But in light of all of that, even with all of that, your servant Paul is brought to this expression of worship. And through his spirit-inspired writing, the church has been as well for now 20 centuries. Father, do it again this morning, I pray. Enable us to be worshipers of God in a manner worthy of you, in a manner worthy of this description, experiencing the very things that are written on the page here, not just reading them as a description of what ought to be. Glorify yourself among us, Father, and surely now, not least, as we remember the price that was paid for our salvation the sacrifice of the eternal Son of God in the flesh. Another expression that in our minds is not even possible. And yet by your grace and mercy and according to your love for the world, you tell us, it has been accomplished. Father, enable our remembrance now, a remembrance that has us going out of this place conformed to the image of your Son and worshiping you like he does. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.